Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. When you talk about expanding the national park system, any expansion should be strategic, whether it's to protect a cultural or historical site or one rich in natural resources. And today, if you want to protect natural resources, it should be done with an eye towards protecting biodiversity. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. There is too much at stake today to expand the park system just for the sake of adding units. The country is losing too much of nature to development, bird populations have been plummeting, climate change is challenging many other species. So where do you look to protect biodiversity from the human footprint? One possible area is the mobile tensaw region of Alabama. To gain an understanding of what's there to protect, we've reached out to Bill Finch, director of the Paint Rock Research Center in Alabama, and who has been involved in Alabama conservation for more than 30 years. We'll be back in a minute to learn about the Mobile Tensaw Delta area. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Everglades Foundation the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Welcome to The Traveler, Bill. Thank you, sir. So, describe the mobile tent area for our listeners. Let me, let me look at Alabama more broadly. It's, it's very interesting. The, um, when you think about centers of biodiversity, in the world, you probably don't think about Alabama, but you should. Uh, it is it is um, probably the third or fourth most biodiverse state in the country. TNC, when TNC worked with um, NatureServe to look at how we rank states for biodiversity, Alabama always ranks very, very high. It is clearly the most biodiverse state east of the Mississippi River uh, by in, almost any measure. Uh, it's the center of fish diversity in North America. Uh, I always like to say you could take almost any stream in Alabama and there would be more fish species in a mile of that stream than there would be in the entire state of California. Uh, in, in most uh, streams, uh, the fish diversity would be higher than the entire Pacific coast from Mexico up to Canada. Uh, extraordinary fish diversity. It's the center of oak diversity in North America, north of Mexico. It's the center of magnolia diversity uh, in North America. It's the center of hickory diversity globally. It's the center of sunflower diversity globally. It's the center of turtle diversity in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, it's the center of crawfish diversity 
for people who care about crawfish, and we do, <laughs> uh, almost any place in the world, it's astonishing. A uh, hundred species of crawfish and still counting. All of these are measures, proxies, uh, if you want to, of the total biodiversity in the state of Alabama. And it's extraordinary. And it's been incredibly neglected. Uh, we're also the center of uh, unfortunately, endangered species, one of the great centers of endangered species, certainly the center of extinctions uh, on the continent, uh, extraordinary number of extinctions because of the neglect of Alabama's biodiversity. So all of those things are important statewide. Uh, I will also have to say that it is one, it, you can't understand American politics uh, and you, you won't understand American politics now if you don't understand uh, what happened in Alabama, and how the cultural suppression uh, in so many ways was interacted uh, with those extinctions. It's really interesting to watch and to see how <clears throat> ignorance and bias uh, uh, and, and ignorance of diversity tended to come back and haunt Alabama in many ways, and the nation as a result. So, all of these things, Alabama is this incredible center that no one really pictures in their mind as being a center, maybe because Alabama hasn't promoted that enough. Alabama had a guy named Ed Wilson, E.O. Wilson. He started out as Ed Wilson here in Alabama as a, as a child. He became uh, very uh, well-known uh, nationally uh, as sort of uh, one of the great uh, founders of the co concepts of biodiversity uh, and, and really sort of... Uh, wrote that into the modern consciousness uh, of, of the importance of biodiversity. Ed was always fascinated by his growing up in Alabama. And the realization I think that Ed made was, hey, nobody knows this, but one of the reasons I'm really interested in biodiversity is this incredible place I grew up in. And so in later years, he came back to Alabama. And I was working in several ways, uh, writing about Alabama, uh, trying to raise interest. And Ed uh, and I began hatching plans uh, about how we capture this biodiversity in Alabama. And it's not in just one place. I'm, you know, it'd be really nice if we say, "Oh yeah, well let's just let's just put it right here." Uh, as it turns out, that biodiversity is really widespread throughout the state. Uh, and under, if you understand time and geology, you kind of begin to appreciate why. Uh, but we focused in a couple or three areas where we thought it would make the most difference uh, in terms of capturing biodiversity and in terms of opportunities in those places. One of those places was the Alabama River Corridor, uh, which is a fascinating place uh, stretching from basically the whole state, almost the whole state, three quarters of the state, from Birmingham, uh, south through Montgomery and Selma. And I always like to say there's a reason that Martin Luther King marched along the Alabama River from Selma to Montgomery, uh, a very good reason. And uh, and it, it it is linked to the landscape in some very important ways. And from Selma all the way down then to Mobile uh, and the southernmost part of the state, it's a huge corridor. It's hundreds of miles. Uh, and it is the um, it is one of the two centers of aquatic diversity in North America. The other is in Alabama on the Middle Tennessee system around an area called Paint Rock, where we're working now. But we realized this is a real opportunity for, for massive landscape work 
Uh, and we started, we thought, at what would be an easy spot, which was the Mobile Tensaw Delta. It's at the uh, it's at the it's at the bottom of that Alabama River system. It's a product of everything around it. it it's uh, I always like to say there's nothing in the delta that doesn't come from someplace else. But the really cool thing about this delta, which is massive, uh, and probably one of the most biologically diverse delta systems in North America, is how it just swirls everything around. Incredibly productive, uh, and a really beautiful place. It wasn't developed, not because we were kind and thoughtful, but because no one really could figure out how to develop uh, a delta like this one. It's not like the San Joaquin Delta in California, where it's yeah, it's kind of wet sometimes. Uh, this is flooded most of the year, and it's really intense floods that come down that river. So it kept this delta 35 miles long, 10 miles wide, in pretty good shape. Uh, and it's uh, it has it is, uh, maintained its integrity in spite of sea level rise. It may have some it may have some resistance to sea level rise uh, for a variety of reasons, but uh, it's a really cool place. But we also realized. This incredible delta, which is all of these at the Alabama River and the Tom Bigby River splintering into multiple rivers, creating all these little islands over miles and miles and miles. One of the one of those places in eastern North America where you can get really lost, really lost bad. Like you don't know if you're going to find your way out sometimes. Uh, an extraordinary place with cypress and tupelo uh, swamps. Um, one of the two largest cities in North America in 1250 AD at a place called Bottle Creek. The uh, just an extraordinary uh, ancient city uh, that was part of the Mississippian culture that uh, that is there in the middle of that. Uh, they were trying to exploit the productivity and diversity of that deltaic system. Uh, an incredible history surrounding that delta, too. It was one of the first places really settled in uh, the eastern United States, uh, in the southeastern United States, is around that delta. A huge, a long story of biodiversity and history. And so Ed and I thought, we can we can work with this. And Elaine came down, uh, Elaine Leslie, who we've talked with before, and I'm sure you've talked with Elaine and other people in the Park Service. We had a big entourage come down and we discussed it. John Jarvis, name that uh, people with the Park Service should be familiar with. Uh, John was director of the Park Service uh, for uh, a, a number of years during the Obama administration. And John was also working here during the... Um, uh, the explosion of the uh, of the oil rig in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, and he was doing work here, and he was fascinated by the Mobile Tensaw Delta and wanted to see us do more work here. So that became the that became the source of a conversation over time about how how we could expand protection for the Mobile Tensaw Delta, and that's very interesting. Uh, but the question then we had to ask was, well, what really needs protecting here? Where do we draw the lines? And that is a story that brought us back to the Alabama River and all of the diversity that we found along the Alabama River. And Ed uh, wanted that exploration, too. So Ed would say, I want to go back to the Delta. I want you to show me the Delta. But let's go up and let's look at these other places. Let's look at the Red Hills of Alabama. Uh, and let's look at places like where Martin Luther King marched from Selma to Montgomery. Why there? Uh, what was it about that landscape that made it so important uh, 
So our concept went from just the Mobile Tensaw Delta to the Mobile Basin, really. Uh, the, the entire drainage area that comes down in, a massive area, and, and saying, practically speaking, where do we work here? Where do we capture the most diversity? And that expanded before Ed's death. We were, a year ago, uh, we were working um, to develop uh, these larger concepts along the Alabama River Basin. And we got a Black Belt National Heritage Area as part of that, part of our uh, work there. And that's a good start, but there's a lot more to be done there. Sure, sure. Let, let's just back up for a second, though. I mean, you talked about this incredible diversity from from plant life to fish life to, you know, um, even the indigenous history there. What do you attribute that to? I mean, what makes this spot such a, a rich basin for, for natural resources as well as for, for cultural resources? In, in, in 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, time. So 30 seconds. If you'll give me 30 seconds to talk about time. Listen, there were there were many periods of climate change in the past. They were incredibly consequential. We don't think about them, but they occurred. And we don't think about the consequences of having glaciers as far south as Washington, D.C., essentially. Everything in from, you know, southern part of Ohio up is, is just glaciated. There's nothing under a glacier. And that wasn't that long ago. And it happened repeatedly. So where was the forest? Where was the diversity? It wasn't under that glacier. It was in this warehouse, which is the southeast. And Alabama was sort of the center of that warehouse. Is no other way to say it. And every time climate warmed catastrophically, which it did repeatedly and is doing again now, Alabama would share that diversity with the rest of the country, but only some of it. <laughs> because it just couldn't make it farther north for a variety of reasons. So I think the biggest explanation is time. There is the geography component. Alabama is an incredibly diverse state geogra geographically. Uh, people have in their minds, I guess, a cotton field or something. Nah. It's got uh, it's got this incredible coastal plain, which the coastal plain here is is incredibly undulating. It's got hills and one of the fastest rising places of the coastal plain in the entire eastern United States. And then it goes all the way up to the Appalachians and the Cumberlands, uh, just astonishing diversity up there. So all of those places created refugia that were protected over time. And that's that's it. And, and you know, it's still that. This is why Alabama is so important to the nation is not because Alabama is diverse, but because Alabama's diversity is being it will be shared and has always been shared with the rest of the country. And that's incredibly important uh, as we go through this next period of climate change. Yeah. You know, you talk about the diversity there. And one thing that, that struck me when I first started looking at the Mobile Tensile area and, and talking to Elaine Leslie, who, when she went down to visit you originally, I think was the, the chief of natural resources or biological resources for the Park Service, now retired. But, you know, she mentioned the diversity of turtles. And so I started looking into those turtle species and whatnot. And, and one that came out of a nightmare was the alligator sna snapping turtle. I mean, that looks like a throwback to the, the dinosaur days. I mean, um, it just looks like a, a nasty animal to deal with. Well, no, they're actually, actually alligator snapping turtles are quite pleasant compared to common snapping turtles. But uh, we now know there are three species of alligator snapping turtles in the Southeast, uh, and they've been around for a long time. They are a relic. You know, one of the, uh, 
one of the really interesting things about diversity in Alabama, and I think the turtles express that, turtles are one of the oldest families still extant. Uh, they've survived a, a, lot, a lot of changes, uh, more so than most families. And so it, it's really interesting. So if you really want to understand what makes a species survive, what is the what makes a family survive? It's really good to understand turtles. And uh, and the alligator snapping turtle is one of those incredible survivors. And they are big uh, and they are fierce looking. They're, but, they're big. They're, oh, they're, they're, some they're of them incredibly beautiful. 200 pounds, 300 pounds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Massive, massive things. Yeah. And uh, and just, you know, all sorts of turtles there. It, it's uh, and, and around it, not just in the water, which is also kind of interesting. We also have gopher tortoises. One of the last uh, land tortoises to survive uh, in North America, a beautiful uh, part of the ecosystem there that lives only in uh, that digs deep 15 foot holes in longleaf pine forest to uh, to hide in. So it's it's a place of extremes where turtle diversity is concerned, all sorts of turtles. Uh, but yes, uh, and, and I think the turtles are so representative of that ancient, the ancientness of that biodiversity. We're talking today with Bill Finch. He's the director of the Paint Rock Research Center in Alabama. He's been involved with uh, conservation in Alabama for more than 30 years. And we're, we're talking about the Mobile Tensaw Delta area and its biodiversity, um, whether it needs to be protected by the national park system, whether it should be and whether it can be. We're gonna take a short break. We'll be right back. National Parks Traveler has launched the National Parks RVing Guide, the definitive guide for RVers seeking information on campgrounds in the National Park System. The guide is now available free through the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. If you're a traveler who wants to explore the National Park System, you'll want this app. The guide is packed with RVing specific details for campgrounds in more than 70 national parks across the country. Search by park, state, or region of the country, and you'll find information about campgrounds that can handle big rigs, those with showers and dump stations, ADA-accessible sites, and more. You'll find stories about RVing in the parks, tips for new RVers, as well as feeds of the traveler's content. Our latest stories and recent podcasts are just a tap away. Download the National Parks RVing Guide and start planning your next trip today. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Do you work or volunteer for the National Park Service? Are you retired from the Department of the Interior? Learn how you could earn $250 by joining Interior Federal Credit Union and opening up a new credit card. Visit their website for membership details and how to join. Federally insured by NCUA. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. 
You know, Bill, one of the things um, I, I read several times and heard mentioned was that the, this, this Delta area is basically the Amazon of North America. It's so rich and, and even remote, despite its proximity to, to major cities. Yes. Well, and so Ed, Ed I think, uh, coined that phrase, uh, the Amazon of North America. You know, it's uh, what Ed meant by that, and we've, we've, we talk about that a lot, and, and I talked about it with Ed a lot. I, I don't think he just referred to the Delta itself, not just to that Delta floodplain, uh, which is a, which is a, a, a there, there's some unusual things there, but it is not the great center of diversity. I think to understand what Ed meant by Amazon and its incredible biodiversity was the Alabama River Corridor which again it stretches about 200 250 miles from uh the black from uh, just above the black belt uh, in fact from touches the appalachians comes all the way down and when you look at that that's where the that's where the great centers of biodiversity are uh fish mussels snails oaks um there's another center i i should note a little farther north in the tennessee system uh, which is also incredible for biodiversity and might also be called uh, Amazon-like uh, in its biodiversity along the uh, Middle Tennessee system. But uh, but I think he was thinking of that whole corridor when he, when he talked about it being Amazon-like. And what's interesting to me is that um, there are many ways it's not tropical. Let's be clear. There are many ways we don't have the kind of tropical forest that Bolivia does or that uh, Peru does or or Brazil does, but it is uh, for a temperate zone. It's extraordinary, and in many ways, it competes with the Amazon. So when we talk about you know you think Western Hemisphere, where's going to be the center of, center of turtle diversity? Surely it's the Amazon. Well, no. <laughs> it turns out it's the southeastern U.S. and particularly this area uh, surrounding Mobile, Clark, and and Baldwin counties. And when you think about uh, when you think about muscle diversity uh, in the world. Um, Alabama has more species of mussels than the than all of South America and Central America combined. Just extraordinary. And so there are some measures in which we don't compete, but with the tropics, and that needs to be clear. But there are some measures where it's just extraordinary. And you think, how did this come to be? Why is this? And again, I think it's time and the anxiousness of this flora and fauna that it, it, that makes it that way. But yes, it is Amazon-like in its diversity. But I guess you have to ask too, for all that richness you described from the fisheries to the, the, the oak trees, the hickories, the tupelos, how is it managed to survive without being pillaged, if you will? Um, as you know, we go after natural resources for their value and to make a buck. Well, it didn't all survive. I have to be honest, uh, because it was uh, Alabama is the great center of extinction in the continental United States, and uh, that was pretty serious. But much of it did. Uh, I, I think accessibility <laughs> uh, always makes a big difference, uh, sure. and. Uh, a lot of the areas weren't accessible. I, you know, a lot of the impacts in Alabama originally were in the 19th century. Uh, Alabama was like a, it was a gold rush for cotton and other things, but it was pretty limited. We didn't have the tools in the 19th century to totally destroy a place. 
uh, like we do now. So uh, it's uh, we didn't have bulldozers. We didn't have big, big, massive John Deere tractors. So it was uh, the the impacts were relatively limited, and a lot of those places managed to survive. Some were just not accessible, and uh, and and so a lot of that survived. The Alabama River corridor. The nice thing about it uh, is it runs through places people have never heard of, because no one, very few people live there now. Uh, and there's a long social history about that. They're, these are not great population centers uh, in, in many ways. And, and so they don't have a lot of people standing up and down and saying, oh, wow, I got I live in a really cool place. Uh, that's the downside. But the upside is, is that cities have not, and suburbs and exurbs have not yet uh, destroyed those areas uh, for, for large, large proportions uh, of where this diversity is. So there's still a lot of opportunity there to protect those areas. And we could go into a long philosophical discussion about what actually destroyed nature uh, in North America uh, and who's most to blame. But I will just say a lot of it, uh, a lot of it remains in Alabama for a lot of reasons. Yeah, that is really interesting. Now, back in 2016, I believe it was, um, the PBS NewsHour did a segment on the region, and part of that discussion revolved around adding the area to the national park system. Where do things stand with that today? I mean, I watched that 2016 show, and it seemed like, you know, there was always that apprehension, you know, we don't want to let the federal government take things over because we'll lose a lot of what we have. Yeah, so you've heard that story in other places too, uh, and certainly Maine had that problem recently uh, in, in the past decade uh, with with park efforts there. There's always concern about that. You know, I, I do think that there was opposition, clearly opposition, to developing a, a park in the Mobile Tensaw Delta, and uh, the claim was, and it's it's a fair claim that the state already ha had protected a large part of the interior of the Mobile Tensaw Delta. And so a, a fair question might be, do we really want to have more Cypress and Tupelo if we've already protected much of that already? So the question was, would it be duplicative? And, and no, I don't think so. I think there would have been some really great opportunities for access, for public access, and for interpretation uh, that simply aren't available now. But we haven't we haven't been back to test that in the Mobile Tensaw Delta. There's been a lot going on. There were several changes of administration. Uh, that doesn't help things, does it? So we had to go through a lot of transitions. Right now, however, there's a lot of there was a huge amount of support for the Black Belt National Heritage Area, which covered 19 counties and captured the upper part of the delta. And what exactly is the the Black Belt Heritage Area? So that was legislation that was passed uh, in the in the uh, last year, uh, and it was really great. So a, a national heritage area, of course, is a national park service designation that doesn't necessarily involve owning land, but that creates a cultural and uh, landscape identity for a place, and it allows that place to work closely with the national park service to develop opportunities there for tourism, for protection, uh, for many other things. So heritage areas are all across the country. They can be based on many things, and they're really neat. Uh, they don't always involve owning land, and in this case, it didn't. But it did help to facilitate a, a very good argument that allows us to 
engage with the National Park Service if we can over the next uh, next few years and and begin to see what are the opportunities for actual National Park Service involvement in the landscape, particularly in the upper part of the Alabama system, uh, where there is little, very little controversy and where there's an incredible amount of diversity, human and biological. So, Bill, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, the Park Service has, in one fashion or another, been involved with this area, the Mobile Tensile area, for a long time. Um, back in 1974, I believe, the Mobile Tensile River bottomlands were designated a national natural landmark. Come up to the recent past, 2017, the National Park Service released a state of knowledge report on the region, and that was authored by dozens of scientists and scholars interested in the future of the Delta. That report included surveys of the region's key resources, noting what likely is the greatest turtle diversity in the world, as you mentioned, the region's unique geology, hydrology, the evidence of human settlements dating back thousands of years. At the time, Elaine Leslie, who we've, we've talked about, said that this area of North America is one of the richest in regards to intact biodiversity, and its cultural history and heritage is of equal treasure. It sounds like the Park Service would really like to have greater involvement in this area, or are they just trying to build up interest in the area? Well, I, I can't speak for the Park Service. Uh, I, I do think that uh, I, I do think because there was such a big overlap with the Black Belt Heritage Area and that report, that study that we did, the state of the knowledge of the Mobile Tensaw Delta, uh, because it was a big overlap between the area defined uh, as Mobile as as part of that greater ecosystem and the Black Belt Heritage Area, I think I think the Park Service expressed its interest by developing that Black Belt Heritage Area, which I think may allow us another step. Now, I can't get inside the mind of the Park Service because there are many minds there. Sure, sure. But you, you mentioned that John Jarvis showed up and, and talked yeah. to Ed Wilson about That's the area, right. so That's he right. was keenly interested. John was keenly interested. And, uh, you know, Destry Jarvis, uh, John's brother, works with us very closely. Uh, the... Um, NPCA, the National Parks Conservation Association, uh, is working with us very closely in that basin, in the Alabama basin, to develop the potential there. And so they obviously have the year of people in the Park Service. They're not the Park Service, but they have the year. And uh, and it's so, so there's a good relationship there. And I think the potential is there. I think you have to go into it the right way. I, I do think there will be politics. I think there are ways to, to avoid that, the pol political issues. Uh, if if it's done smartly and if we recognize that the diversity is throughout the entire basin and not just in the Delta, uh, I think the Delta will probably be a, a little bit of a hot potato from a, a National Park Service standpoint for a while. Uh, and, you know, but that's OK. We got a lot of work to do there. And we've got some other fabulous places that really need protection, perhaps more than the Delta itself needs protection, because the Delta gains so much from the protection of places around it. So it's, um, you know, I think there's a there's a lot of opportunity there. And I do think there is an interest in the Park Service. Uh, and I think we've got a lot of work to do to, to make sure that the Park Service, that we wave our arms enough uh, that the Park Service uh, pays attention. And I, I think that's happening. And, uh, and but, uh, but I think there's a lot of potential there. I'm very excited about it. But then there's also the question of 
could the Park Service handle it? And, and by that, I mean, you know, there's already 424, 425 units. Um, it's well known that the Park Service is understaffed, is underfunded. Why take on another national park of such such extreme, uh, incredible places if it can't manage the ones that it already has? Yeah, well, so here's the here's the thing. Um, yes, <laughs> and particularly when you're looking at an area that's the size of Vermont and New Jersey, uh, which is what this what the area we're talking about is. So the Park Service can't uh, look at this as a sort of a new Yosemite. It's not a new Yellowstone. It's going to have to be a different model. And I, I, I do think there are new models developing. We have a history of other ways of looking at how parks work. One of the things we talk about, and I, I think this makes the Park Service's involvement very practical, is to think of this as a series of nodes along the Alabama River at critical junctures where the Park Service can't own everything, doesn't protect everything, but really concentrates on developing those nodes, developing knowledge about those nodes, sharing that knowledge with other people and allowing us to expand through um, uh, the LWCF, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, uh, to, to other areas beyond that. So we see it as a, as a series of nodes up and down the river, from the Mobile Tensaw Delta all the way up to uh, certainly Selma and maybe all the way up to Birmingham along the Cahaba River. But there are several critical nodes, and the Park Service could uh, begin working with those nodes. One node we already have, which is the Selma to Montgomery Trail, which is a yeah. National Park Service designation. Uh, it, it is a trail without a landscape. Uh, and 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 yet there's a reason why that trail was where it is. It's the landscape and it's the people who lived around that trail and their contributions, which we sometimes forget that it wasn't just it wasn't just something that came from outside. It was something that came from within Alabama that prompted that Selma to Montgomery Trail. Uh, you know, um, Stokely Carmichael and H. Rat Brown uh, were working there with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee at a at a uh, to uh, to get voting rights in Lowndes County uh, right there along the trail. We actually have a, there's an interpretive center right there along the trail and the only landscape around it is the parking lot, but just down the road is is the safe house where Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown created the concept of, well, created the Black Panther Party mm -hmm. uh, as Martin Luther King was was beginning to march towards uh, towards Montgomery. And that's just down the road from um, one of the great utopian communities uh, of the Red Sticks when they were trying to revive the concept of what it is to be an Eastern Native American nation. And the Red Sticks uh, created that uh, project there at, uh, at uh, Iganojaga, uh, just down from where um, Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown were creating the Black Panther Party right next to where Martin Luther King was marching. And it was right next to one of the great centers of Hickory diversity, which is why Ikano Chaga was where it was, because Hickories were so important to that community. And that all of those things changed American history. Uh, the Red Stick, the, the Red Stick uh, Utopian community uh, became called the Red Stick Rebellion uh, by Andrew Jackson. And uh, it was crushed at Horseshoe Bend, uh, again, in the Alabama Basin. And that set up Indian policy, the Indian policy we're still living with, uh, for better or for worse. 
uh, throughout North America. It was created almost whole cloth by Andrew Jackson after that, uh, after those, after those battles. Uh, and of course, I don't need to say how important that Selma to Montgomery March was. So all of those things are converging there at this node, this beautiful node. There's an interpretive center. The only landscape around it is a parking lot. And we have incredible opportunities there. I, I will, we can talk about them as we get down the road a little bit, but there's incredible opportunities there for the Park Service to think about that a little better. Sure, sure. We're talking today with Bill Finch, uh, director of the Paint Rock Research Center in Alabama, about the Mobile Tensaw area, about biodiversity, about national parks. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. So Bill, you know, the Biden administration is pushing the need to protect 30% of the nation's lands and waters for conservation by 2030. Uh, E.O. Wilson, of course, thought we needed to protect 50%. And, um, where does the Mobile Tensaw region fall in that mission? How much of it is protected? I mean, does it have to be a unit of the national park system to protect that biodiversity for future generations? No, it doesn't. You know, I think there's some great models, uh, by the way. Uh, the Park Service doesn't need to own all of it. The Park Service needs to be the catalyst for conservation. And it can be that catalyst in many ways. We have some great uh, we have some great models in Alabama and other states where the Park Service partners with, for example, the state of Alabama, uh, and uh, and creates the Little River National Reserve, which is preserved, which is a beautiful place in Northeast Alabama. We needed more of it. We needed to protect more of it, but it was a great way. And, and the Park Service's presence there has been key. Uh, I don't think the conservation effort would have been as good. I don't think that certainly certainly the public access would never have been as good uh, had it not been for the National Park Service's work there. And, and they're playing a key role there. So I think there's an incredible opportunity for the National Park Service to work with conservation efforts from other groups uh, and uh, in sort of a new way of thinking about national parks. Certainly it should work with the state and it shouldn't try to, I don't think there's any benefit in trying to basically redo what the state has already done. Sure. 
what we want to do is see is additionality and and uh in terms of conservation in terms of preservation in terms of interpretation uh and so that needs to be additional work but the park service is such a great leader in all of those ways at, at making us think about those things in much bigger ways. So I, I do think that, that that is an opportunity for the Park Service without a huge expenditure for land. And there's some really clever ways. You know, there's lots of federal lands. Mm, I, was wondering, I was wondering what the, the land mixed is. So is there's, state, there's private, you know, federal? the state. Alabama does not have a lot of federal lands compared to a lot of states. Right. All states, all states have federal lands that are used well or not used well. Uh, and they get they get devolved into various agencies for a lot of crazy reasons over the years, whether it's the Defense Department or whether it's the Army Corps of Engineers, which is part of the Defense Department, or, or other groups. And in many cases, the management of those lands is not that great. And the thought about how to manage them is not that great. So there's lots of opportunities. I hope the Black Belt Heritage Area designation helps us to think about those. But the National Park Service to work with other federal agencies to do better protection on federal lands that are not now really thoughtfully protected. Simply incorporating those federal lands without doing the additional protection doesn't help anybody. But I do think the Park Service can work with other federal agencies, and that's a great start for the for thinking about the Alabama River Corridor. What are the other federal agencies? What are their land holdings? Is it, Can the public use those? Should the public use them? Is there biodiversity there to protect? Is there interpretation that needs to be done? And the Park Service could be a big leader in that. Are we running on a, a short timeline? Um, you know, the Biden administration's Almost over, at least uh, for the first term. Um, politics, as you well know, in Washington, you know, can can turn things around on the dime. Practically every four years, you can have a, a change in marching orders. Yeah, it's scary. Life is scary in conservation. Uh, we don't have we don't have much time. Uh, we've never had much time. Not only because of the political situation, but because of the degradation that can occur to these habitats. Uh, in, in the meanwhile. Well, I was going to ask the, that 2016 PBS NewsHour show talked about um, you know development being one of the biggest uh, concerns, and I think there was also some industrial pollution concerns. Yeah, I would say industrial pollution is now way down the list. It's there, but it's not the big one. Uh, everybody likes to make that the big one because nobody likes to smell their own stink. But <laughs> uh, the truth is, it's development and it's occurring and it's occurring right on the edge of the Delta. And it is, it has probably destroyed tremendous opportunities for protection of the Delta. And everybody says, Oh, well, let's, let's protect this little wetland area in the middle, but everything that's coming into that wetland is coming off of the yards and the driveways right. of the people that are now building around the mobile tensile Delta. We're losing that at a rapid rate. We had a really incredible opportunity uh, to uh, commemorate a site for Ed. And uh, and basically, we got caught up in the land uh, speculation business, and it, it just blew it out of the water. Uh, we did. Uh, we have worked with some great groups, including Patagonia, uh, and, uh, and to preserve areas. Uh, and uh, there's a great area. The, the end of the Civil War, I, I will have to say, the last battle of the Civil War, the defining battle of the Civil War, Blakely. Uh, was at Blakely, 
which is where where Ed's ancestors were from, by the way. Uh, E.O. Wilson's ancestors were at this little community, ghost town called Blakely. That's where they they had first moved. And so Ed was very interested in it. But uh, we had an opportunity to buy some property there. And and um, we managed to get some folks involved. Vince Dooley, the old University of Georgia coach, uh, did some fundraising for us. It really helped. Uh, Patagonia helped in the end. Uh, uh, the Conservation Fund played a big role. But it, it's this incredible place, this beautiful bluff overlooking the Delta with these ancient forests, these old magnolia oak forests that are basically these the, the remnants of forests that, you know, that were these Pleistocene forests that uh, once uh, travel once extended down into Mobile Bay, overlooking this beautiful expanse of Cypress and Tupelo and, and, and rivers and network as far as you could see. And on that bluff, as Robert E. Lee was marching to Appomattox, with only a fraction of the Confederate troops, I should note, the the Union recognized that we've got to capture Mobile. We've that we've we've got to put an end to this. Robert E. Lee's not going to do it for us. Jeff Davis is down in Florida saying, "Oh, it ain't over yet. It ain't over yet. We're still going to fight." So the largest contingent of U.S. colored troops ever to fight in the Civil War, as far as I know, converged there at Blakely, and they were so. It was a very emotional battle, not only because it, many people saw it as the last and most decisive battle, but also because many of the people that the U.S. colored troops were fighting had enslaved, had been slavers, and some were even fighting people who had enslaved them. Uh, so they led the charge, and it was a little bit of a controversy as to who should have led the charge, but they led it, and in 20 minutes, they completely overran the Confederate forces. Uh, crushed them uh, and crushed the battle. And and it was, and that was the end. Uh, I mean, that was it. After that, Jeff Davis didn't have a prayer uh, and he knew it. And the, uh, and the troops in North Carolina that uh, were not part of uh, Robert E. Lee's uh, surrender, uh, they in turn surrendered. So it was, it was a huge event uh, and it's not celebrated at all. And it's this beautiful convergence of biodiversity and, and, and a compelling story of human diversity, all right there together on the edge of the Mobile Tensaw Delta. And what a beautiful thing. And now what a scary thing, because development, housing, driveways, they're running over it. Mm. We may have very little of that left if we don't work on it very quickly. So am I scared? I'm scared to death. Uh, and it won't just be the end of an administration. It will be the end of a place if we don't work on it quickly. Well, there are many other chapters we could delve down into, Bill, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have today. But but thanks so much for joining us and explaining the wonders of that place. And uh, it's hard to weigh right now the risk the place is in, but um, certainly it sounds like an incredible biodiverse place in the eastern, southeastern part of the United States. We don't often talk about um, seeing land protection down there, and it'd be a great addition um, to protect it one way or the other going forward. Yeah, thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. In the, in the weeks ahead, we're going to be conducting more interviews on this whole question of whether or not to expand the national park system and biodiversity, and do the two, are they mutually exclusive or not? For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.